This is the show that never ends. It's part four of the patron special. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the daily, weekly, irregularly scheduled podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. Uh, today, while huddled, hiding from high winds, fire, and a possible mandatory fire evacuation. So if you hear something howling in the background, that's not my stomach, it's just the breeze. Uh, and let's get this patron show over with by getting it started. Paul asks, where does your logo come from, Mike? Okay, well, if you've seen my logo, it's a rocket ship. And uh, I really like space. (laughs) That's it. I just really like space. I like the idea of... uh, There's also a denotion of velocity in my little circle rocket logo so that the rocket's taking us somewhere. Uh, A friend of mine designed it, and I absolutely love it. Kevin asks, I've heard that cell phones and routers near you while you sleep can cause everything from interrupted sleep patterns to cancer. Is there any validity to any of this at all? Yes, but not what you think. Uh, Internet routers have flashing, blinking lights, and uh, flashing, blinking lights are bad for the quality of your sleep. The same thing, looking at your phone while in bed, Uh, basically trains your your body and your mind and your brain to be active in bed instead of falling asleep. And looking into a phone is kind of like looking into a flashlight at night and makes your brain feel wide awake. Neither your Wi-Fi router nor your phone will give you cancer uh, because although they do emit electromagnetic radiation, that radiation is non-ionizing and therefore not dangerous to living tissues. Holly asks what goes on in a sex addict's brain, particularly if they are in denial that their view of sexuality is unhealthy. It is confusing to me how an otherwise loving, compassionate person can justify overstepping sexual boundaries over and over again, especially when they see how it is further traumatizing their partner. Uh, Holly, I'd start by saying that uh, sexual addiction is a clinical diagnosis. Um, And so even if someone has some unhealthy or even compulsive sexual behaviors, that does not necessarily mean they are a sex addict unless they have been diagnosed so by a qualified mental health professional. Uh, Of course, there are many reasons someone on a spectrum of sexual addiction or compulsion or straight-up immorality Uh, may overstep the boundaries of a relationship. Um, And unfortunately, we can't control other people's actions. So if you're in a relationship with someone, and I'm not saying you are, I just mean hypothetically, if if someone's in a relationship with someone who uh, practices frequent sexual infidelity, uh, it's probably a sign that that relationship should not continue Uh, if sexual fidelity is important to you. It is important to me. It is also important to my wife. Uh, 
and my wife and I have absolute sexual fidelity to one another uh, as a sign of mutual love and honor and respect. Um, and if your partner just literally can't do that, um, they either need to seek treatment and then show some willingness uh, to, to, to respect their partner like that, or they just don't need to be in any sort of monogamous relationship where they're going to continually re-traumatize their partner. Now, in situations of specific addiction, uh, brain scans have shown us uh, that there becomes basically a um, a very um, short-circuited pathway in the brain. I can't think of a better metaphor than that. Uh, that almost bypasses the parts of the brain responsible for agency uh, in from that stimulus to the more powerful emotional centers of the brain. So uh, we can, we believe, see addiction in certain types of brain imaging today, and it is uh, a serious problem for people who suffer from any sort of addiction, the degree to which their willpower you know, isn't significantly... Um, doesn't have a significant capacity to will to influence the behavior that is manifested by their addiction. Um, but if you're addicted to something and you care for other people, uh, you can still seek treatment and be open to treatment options. And even if someone is open to treatment options and they have a legitimate addiction, uh, the behavior may continue or they may seem better for a while and then they can have a pretty serious relapse. And uh, the only person who can decide if that's okay with them or not is the person's partner. Justin says, What do you make of martyrs? If all belief systems can lead to the divine, then are any of them worth dying for? Oh, Justin, that is a fantastic question. I've never contemplated before this moment. Um... I don't know that like a particular religious understanding of God is worth dying for, but I think that um, our religious beliefs can be worth dying for that are inspired by that specific God. So if, for example, you believed that, um, let's go with something very obvious, killing children is wrong. Um, and you lived in a society where people killed children frequently, just, you know, school-aged kids, um, and you refused to do so on religious grounds, and they say, well, if you're not going to kill children, we're going to kill you, and you are martyred, I certainly think that is worthwhile, not only because you have not been complicit in perpetuating harm, but also your resistance to a violent system may inspire others in a way that eliminates the system altogether. So, as usual, when you ask me a, a difficult uh, philosophic question, I shortcut to pragmatism. And so I would say any form of martyrdom that leads towards justice, uh, I can totally get behind. Nathan asks, how aware are we of when we are engaging in virtue signaling, both liberal and conservative? I've had some conversations with some typically older family and friends about things like systemic injustice, 
which go well and are respectful. But eventually we get to a point where the other person bails out on me, usually with a comment that's an admittance of some bias that they denied at the beginning of the conversation. It can be frustrating, like I'm wasting my time trying to assume good intentions on their part and a lack of information and data are our disconnect. It feels frustrating trying to navigate. I'm sure I do the same thing in the other direction. How can we do a sort of reality check at the beginning of these kinds of talks so we know our biases and those of others? Nathan, I suppose you could study uh, well-known cognitive and psychological biases and understand they're basically universal. <laughs> and it's just uh, it's just a question of what you're biased toward, and that's going to be primarily a function of social identity. Changing people's minds and especially their worldviews is incredibly difficult and takes a long time. Uh, you're, if It's unrealistic to think that you can have a single conversation with someone and significantly alter the way they see the world. Um, I think justice work in interpersonal relationships involves slow, <laughs> seemingly invisible progress, um, and also more than one person. Um, so you're just hoping to add you know, maybe one more grain of sand to a scale that will eventually tip in that direction, hopefully. Um, I don't think that everyone can sit down and disclose their biases. I don't think people know their own biases well enough. I try to know mine. Sometimes I'm blindsided. Um, and that's just that's just this crazy species of ours. That's just who we are. And... Um, just try to be present with people and really try to listen to them and um and then and then just be honest about where you are and why and uh also information and data are fine they're nowhere near as powerful as stories if you can figure a way to get a toehold into a person's value system uh using a story they're much more likely to listen and much more likely to be slowly changed by the information you present via a compelling narrative. Cliff asks, how are specific genes and their functions isolated and identified within a larger strand of DNA? How are traits traced back to a specific location within the genome? Wow, Cliff, uh, swing for the fences. <laughs> That I think I'd need 25 minutes to scratch the surface of that one. There's no one way genes are isolated. Um, in, in this age of the Human Genome pro- Project, we have at least sequenced the entire human genome. That doesn't mean we understand it. And uh, once we have a string of data in the form of a gene sequence, figuring out what it does... Um, takes a long time uh there's um the discipline is called gene prediction try to predict what genes will do and um sometimes it's done with computers that are um looking for 
like commonly known sequences or genetic words that we understand in larger uh, phrases, and uh, that helps us understand what they may do. And then we can also um, use a more evidence-based approach where we compare DNA sequences uh, with different RNA sequences and see how they engage in the larger cell, or we can compare the genomes of two individuals and uh, even across species sometimes and uh, see there by comparing and contrasting what genes may do. And finally, we can actually alter genes in organisms to uh, see what they do in that organism, which obviously is deeply troubling for human testing. Um, but it's, this, is a, this is a massive field of science that is not... Simple. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically, it's detective work. It's detective work with uh, billions of tiny clues. Um, I, you know, I, it's... I'm deeply unsatisfied with my answer to this question, Cliff. <laughs> um Trace back to a specific location within the genome is not as difficult now that we can uh, sequence large portions of the genome and that we have a map for the entire human genome. Um, but this specific function, uh, that's, that's what researchers do uh, in genetic work today. That's their whole job. Amanda says, Hey, Science Mike, my grandpa was visiting Italy recently and told me he visited the body of a saint in a church who had died centuries ago but whose body has not decayed. What are your thoughts on this? Do you think this is a real phenomenon? And if so, what's going on here? Thanks. Uh, I'm, I've am i seen some reports of religious-generated um, lack of decomposition. It usually comes down to excellent embalming or excellent um, environmental factors for preservation. Um, decomposition is a chemical process that is... Um, our, your body's bacteria turns on you when you're not alive anymore. And certain populations explode and, and, and your bacteria starts to break down your tissues. If you stop that process and you make the tissues inhospitable inhospitable to bacteria, a body can last for a long time. I mean, if you put a body in space, for example, uh, I would imagine that it, it could be around for hundreds of millions or billions of years um, because it would be dry and it would be cold and it would be inhospitable to bacteria. Um, so if you get, a, if you get a, a cadaver or a corpse dry and cool, uh, they can last quite a long time uh, without any apparent signs of advanced decomposition. And I would imagine that's what's going on with this saint that your grandfather saw. April says, I didn't see my question. I thought I submitted it, but now I'm thinking I didn't hit post. Sorry if it comes up twice. Uh, it did not. So don't worry about that, April. I read a study that followed Biggest Loser contestants, and I would love you to break it down in Science Mike fashion. 
It seems for these contestants, profound weight loss damaged their metabolisms even years later, and they were at a greater metabolic disadvantage after shedding pounds than they were to start with. I understand humans have to fight to lose weight because our bodies try to hold on to fat, but these findings seem to show that their bodies kept fighting for those pounds back years later. And so to maintain weight loss, they would have to work harder and harder over time. Yuck. If that's true, then should obese people avoid losing significant amounts of weight? Or do you feel like this is an isolated study without enough data? Is it that we just have a predetermined weight that we're genetically predisposed to and our bodies fight to stay at? Or just how anyone's body could fight back to get back to where it was after gaining thin losing weight? Thanks, Mike. Um... Losing weight rapidly is not healthy, and the biggest loser encourages this this really rapid weight loss. Um, it is true that as you get uh, bigger and heavier and more obese, that you need less energy to maintain a, a pound of your body than someone who's thinner, and your metabolism gets used to that. And so when you lose weight, and if I, you know, I weigh, I'm actually losing weight right now, but I got up to 250 pounds, which is not as heavy as I've ever been, but still pretty heavy. I'm just under like 239 right now. And um, if I say I get to 200 pounds, once I get to 200 pounds, it'll take less calories to keep me at 200 pounds than someone who's never weighed 250 pounds. My metabolism is actually slower. It's not that I have to work harder and harder over time, but it does mean I'll have to work hard, period, to maintain that weight. Harder than someone who has never been obese. And that just has to do with how our metabolisms function. Um, it is also true that uh, obesity is uh, increasing um, and that scientists see a variety of factors at play and we don't know all of them, but we know that even animals who eat a... Um, prescribed amount of calories per day in laboratory environments are also getting more obese. Um, and that, that would somewhat mitigate the, it's simply a matter of activity and calorie consumption. Uh, that said, no, uh, it is it is good for your health to decrease the amount of fat on your body. A lot of body fat does put you at a risk of cardiovascular disease, but you at a risk of stroke and heart attack. Um, can put stress on uh, your liver and other organs. So if you if you if you are obese, and I don't mean to be beautiful, I think people of all shapes and sizes are beautiful. But I think if your health is important to you, then decreasing your body fat percentage is important. I wouldn't obsess about a scale number. Um, I would just focus on being intentional about what you eat and on gradually increasing your daily amount of exercise because those things are going to make you feel good. So I don't I don't go on a diet uh, because I want to look great. I think I look great already. When I start to exercise and lose weight, it's because I actually enjoy how I feel. I have more energy. My body aches less. Uh, I actually get hungry a lot less. I'm not I'm not terribly. My appetite's not really bad right now because I've really cut down on the um, processed grains and the uh, processed flour and sugar 
And so my blood sugar, sugar is more stable. All those things are nice. They're nice effects for my body, and I enjoy them. Um, and it may, you know, I, it, it's gonna, it, I don't have a goal weight in mind, um, but I am writing down everything I eat in a food journal and uh, tracking how much exercise I do and just like slowly, and I mean very slowly, taking weight off of my body. Um, about a pound a week is, is, is what I'm kind of settling in at right now. So, uh, that's probably a a sustainable rate of weight loss. As I lose weight, I'll have to eat less and less. Um, and I'll just focus on calorie dense foods. So it's not hopeless, but it is true that if you've, if you've been very heavy, it is harder to stay lighter than someone else who's never been heavy based on how our metabolism functions. Marcy says, several people asked about an aversion to cilantro on your Twitter feed. I am one of those people. It tastes like dish soap to me. One question if it might be psychosomatic. The first time I was exposed to it was during one of my first jobs at a grocery store. Even the smell of it made me gag. I had limited exposure to variety and food up to that point in my life, and I did not know what it was, and I didn't even know it existed. So what about it? Is it a thing? Is it hereditary? No one in my family, and I have asked, shares my aversion. A strange thing has happened to me, Marcy, as uh, Twitter, my Twitter profile has gained followers, I've lost the ability to keep up with the mentions, so I don't remember the cilantro situation. Um, and I'm not familiar uh, with any genetic markers for cilantro aversion. Um, I'm cheating a little bit right now and actually Googling. Um And the New York Times thinks they have the answer. Let's see. According to the New York Times, um, I'm going to pause the recording and come right back. Okay, so no one knows for sure. Uh, Someone claimed to know uh, via genetic testing, but that hasn't been peer-reviewed or verified. Uh, It does turn out that some of the molecules in cilantro are similar to some of the molecules in soap. And since taste and smell are such subjective experiences, if you don't, if you haven't experienced cilantro, like in the context of a dish you enjoyed, you don't have any emotional memory to shape the experience. And so, this uh, scientist um, thinks it's possible that what's happening is in the absence of an emotional connection or a palate that's been prepared for cilantro, the brain just clues in on the similarity to soap molecules and says, oh, you're eating soap. So it's probably related to uh, limited exposure to food variety. Um, And this doctor says in the New York Times that he used to hate cilantro and started trying it in different dishes and now really enjoys it. So it may be possible for you to defeat that aversion if that's something that is important to you. Matt says, Hi Mike, a question that I keep getting asked is along the lines of, if evolution is true and the Adam story is an allegory of human origins, 
What about the genealogies in the Bible? Did they just make that stuff up? That's a very modernist interpretation of ancient literature. I don't think they made that stuff up. Uh, but I do think biblical lineages are meant to be something other than um, a civil record. Uh, a lot of times when you see genealogies in the Bible, they are meant to place people within the lineage of Moses or Abraham or King David. Uh, they're a, a literary historic device, and they're meant to let the reader know that the the claims about this person's life are significant. This story matters precisely because it fits within the overall narrative of the leaders of the people of Israel. Um, but to, to say they made it up, that's a very modernist way of, uh, of approaching historical literature. And that's what the Bible is. It's an ancient, ancient document. And it doesn't fit within the confines of modern history. Conrad says, I just listened to Russell Brand, Under the Skin podcast, speak with controversial scientist Rupert Sheldrake. What is your take on what he claims to be the dogmas of conventional science? And do you think there is enough evidence to support a memory in nature or morphic resonance? Would really like your non-expert assessment of him as a scientist and the concepts that he promotes. Thanks for making science accessible to non-nerd science noobs like me. <laughs> Smiley face. Well, that's a delightful uh, thanks at the end, Conrad. Unfortunately, I am not familiar with Rupert Sheldrake, memory in nature or morphic resonance, so I can't really comment on them. Um, I will say that when people are controversially in science, they're either ahead of the field or off their rocker, and the vast majority of the time, it turns out that they are off their rocker, not ahead of science. Lori says, I am walking slash running away from fundamentalism was in it for 30 years. My husband is still in it. We are in marriage counseling. Through marriage counseling, I've determined I very much need personal therapy. Anything Christian has become toxic to me. And yet I know deeply that I am spiritual by nature. I've heard you discuss therapy a lot. So a few questions then. What kind of therapist will help me with this? Uh, Lori, any qualified therapist can help you uh, go through issues of religious dogma or religious trauma. I found it to be especially helpful if they are not especially religious themselves. Um, so any licensed therapist uh, could be a, a licensed counselor or social worker or a therapist proper can certainly help you talk through that. Um, and you said you've made an initial contact with a psychoanalyst. Great. How long will it take? It takes as long as it takes. Does gender matter? Uh, gender matters as much as it matters to you. Uh, I've had both male and female uh, therapists, and uh, both were perfectly adequate and comfortable for me. How does the process of talk therapy work in the brain? Um, and then you say, I've been to counseling several times in the past with no real lasting change. 
Thanks, Mike. Your ministry has profoundly assisted me and others' blessings. Uh, Lori, therapy works as well as you let it work. Uh, your therapist doesn't do the work you do. So you just need a therapist that you're comfortable with who can guide you through the process of introspection. Um, and there's no one way talk therapy works in the brain. Uh, when you're specifically talking about negative emotions, fear, trauma, those sorts of things, assuming the trauma is not overly intense and it re-traumatizes you exploring it, um, talk therapy basically lets you experience a memory in a safe environment and therefore lessen the emotional energy associated with that memory. And it worked quite well uh, below a certain threshold of trauma, above a certain threshold of trauma, and talking talk therapy is not necessarily effective as uh, explained by my friend Hillary McBride on several episodes of the Liturgist Podcast. Uh, today, actually, we released an episode of Shame that you should probably really check out. You'd enjoy. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's up to you whether there's lasting change or not. If you're with a therapist and it's not working, just just try another one. Um, I usually have to go see three or four people before I find a therapist I, I really want to work with long term. Uh, that's just part of the process, and therapists understand that. If a therapist takes it personally, that you know you're looking around to find a great fit, then they're they're probably not a great therapist. Um, so just try a few therapists when you find someone that is comfortable and um, asks questions and and helps you find insights about yourself. Then you've probably found a good partner for the introspective work that you do. Dev says, hey, Science Mike, I hope I'm not too late with this question. From what I understand of neuroscience, repeated exposure to things like a song or another work of art increases the strength of neural connections in the way those things affect us. So what are the ways we can use this to our advantage in everyday life to make ourselves more loving? To further strengthen some of your neural connections, I really appreciate your work. You've given me a newfound love of science, faith, and life itself. Gosh, thank you. That's kind. Um, there's a saying that neuroscientists have, neurons that wire together. Nope, that's wrong. Neurons that fire together, wire together. And that's what you're talking about when you're exposed to different stimuli, different movements, any sort of repetition. You start creating pathways in your brain for that stimuli slash behavior slash whatever you're doing. And if you want to make yourself have a more loving brain, then practice empathy. Do a loving-kindness meditation. Uh, you know, um, Read portions of Scripture, if you're a Christian, about compassion and about loving others. And, 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 and just focus on those things. The things you kind of think about will gradually shape your perception of the world and gradually shape your behaviors. Um, I mean, that's like the thrust of my faith and why I wrote Finding God in the Waves. The way that I did was to explore, okay, if God impacts our brains, uh, how can we have that impact be as good as we can? That's why I've got a chapter on prayer about how God affects the brain, uh, about what church does. All those things are, are about me kind of unpacking that central question. So if you don't yet have a copy of Finding God in the Waves. It's out on paperback. Amazon has it for less than 10 bucks. And uh, if you're if you're a Prime member, there's no shipping. So like $9 and something cents, 
you can have finding on the ways and that'll have a better answer than I can do on the podcast that fast. Okay, and that'll do it for part four of the patron episode. We've got a handful of questions left, so I'll come back and do those tomorrow, assuming I haven't evacuated my house. Um, if I have, maybe I'll record them somewhere else on my phone. I don't know. Um, I do want to let you know that uh, if, if you're a listener of the Liturgist podcast, we're doing something new over there. Uh, if you go to theliturgist.com slash let's go deeper, Early next year, we're going to launch a couple of video courses, one on the Enneagram and deconstruction slash spiritual formation, and the other one on meditation. And we're doing that with a, a, a another company that's helping us produce those. And uh, we kind of wanted to see what people's response would be if people are interested in that kind of stuff from us. And so from now until the end of the year, if you pre-order those, you get both of them uh, together for the same price, the price of one, BOGO, whatever. I'm not a big uh, sale retail guy. Um, but I'd love for you to check that out if you're interested, theliturgist.com slash let's go deeper, all lowercase, all one word, no dashes, let's go deeper. And uh, you can learn more about our upcoming Enneagram and meditation courses. And uh, hopefully I'll talk to you again tomorrow. <laughs>